Turn with me to Romans 15, 13, and by way of introduction, I want to play a little game with you. It's called Save or Kill. Save or Kill. Um, and by the way, I'm going to talk a, a lot about the content from my book, um, Optimisfits, tonight. And the thing is, I talk really quickly, and people ask why, and it's because um, my thoughts are like cars, and I have a lot of them. It's like rush hour traffic, and if too many of them get piled up in my mind, there's accidents in my head, and I and there's crashes going on in my brain, and it gets all muddled, so I have to like send them out as quick as I can so I can say all my thoughts lest I lose them all. So if you want to read about this stuff in a, you know, a slower rate, on a slower rate, uh, you can get the book after, as Greg said, and the money for the royalties doesn't go to me. The, when you purchase a book, the royalties goes right back into the ministry of Hope Generation to get the message out, which is cool. So I'm excited for that. Okay, this is save or kill. Um, whatever you save, you have to kill the other thing. Whatever you kill, you have to save the opposite thing. The first question is going to be between, it's going to our childhood, Power Rangers or the Ninja Turtles? If you had to save the Power Rangers and kill the Ninja Turtles, or save the Ninja Turtles and kill the Power Rangers, what would it be? How many of you guys, and but we're going to do an applause meter okay? So by round of applause, how many of you would save the Power Rangers? Wow, Trevor, Aaron, that's about it. How many of you would save, that, that's good. Did you see the movie, the live action movie? It was good. How many of you would save the Ninja Turtles? Okay, Ninja Turtles wins. I, I think like 20% of people actually participated. So let's see if you guys all join us this time. The second one is between Marvel or DC. What would you save? What would you kill? How many of you would save DC? Wow. <laughs> Trevor, you are always the minority. Okay, how many of you would save Marvel? Okay, Marvel wins. Marvel wins. Okay, Star Wars or Star Trek? How many of you would save Star Trek? The Denims, okay. How many of you would save Star Wars? Okay. God's love is the most powerful force in the universe. May that force be with you. Speaking of Star Wars, Han Solo or Indiana Jones? Save or kill? Who would you save? Who would you kill? How many of you would save Han Solo? Okay. How many of you would save Indiana Jones? Indy wins. Indy wins. Two more. Speaking of Batman, or actually we aren't speaking of Batman. <laughs> uh, or speaking of Star Wars, pardon me, we mentioned that earlier. Uh, speaking of Star Wars, Yoda or Alfred? You know Batman's butler? Specifically the Michael Caine version from Christopher Knight's Dark Knight trilogy. Who would you save? Who would you kill? Yoda or Alfred? How many of you would save Yoda? Okay. How many of you would save Alfred? Wow. I think we have some alien xenophobes here. You're going for the human. I see you. Okay, how about this last one? Lord of the Rings. Or, my friends, or Chronicles of Narnia. How many of you would save the Chronicles of Narnia? How many of you would save the Lord of the Rings? Okay. Lord of the Rings wins. I'm so glad in real life I don't have to choose between whether I'm going to save or kill Aslan or Frodo. Alfred or Yoda. Marvel or DC. 
Han Solo or Indiana Jones. I'm never in real life faced with the save or kill decision. That's not a, a choice that usually falls in my hands or jurisdiction. But in the story of Jesus, he was faced with the save or kill decision. When he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, the choice was either he was going to save himself and kill his enemies, or he was going to kill his enemies, and, or he was either going to save himself and kill his enemies, or he's going to let his enemies kill him and save them instead. Jesus said, I give my life as a ransom for many. In the save or kill decision, Jesus chose to die so that others could be saved, so that others could live. And Romans 8.32 says, if God did not spare his only son, will he not also with him freely give us all things? Like if God would give us Jesus and did not spare him, but Jesus died to save others, will he not with him freely give us everything else? Like if I gave you a diamond ring and then you saw me eating Pringles and you thought I wouldn't give you a Pringle, I'd say if I gave you my diamond ring, don't you think I'd give you all the Pringles I have? So here's the Lord who's given us the pearl of great price. He's given us the gospel, the good news, Jesus. He would die on a cross. And yet I'm like, I don't know if you're going to answer my prayers. I don't know if you're really going to, you know, answer my petitions or grant me the desires of my heart as I delight in you. No, the Lord says, I will freely give you everything else because I already gave you Jesus in the save or kill decision. And believe me, Jesus could have killed his enemies. Like, he was fully capable of wiping them out. A lot of people think of Jesus as, like, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but they forget that he was very, very powerful. Jesus could have killed his enemies in any one of three ways, no matter how you slice it. Uh, number one, Jesus could have killed his enemies by his preaching. You remember when they came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane? They said, who is Jesus of Nazareth? And he said, I am. He was quoting the bush in Exodus that liked to do existentialist poetry. Cogito ergo sum. Rene Descartes would have been proud. I doubt, therefore I think, therefore I am. I am that I am, says the bush. Jesus quotes the bush. He says, I am. And the moment he says the words, I am, in the Garden of Gethsemane, all of the soldiers, the Jewish lynch mob that came to arrest him, they fell down backwards. He just says, I am. And his word, in Revelation, it says there's a sword coming out of his mouth. It doesn't mean Jesus literally has a sword hanging from his lips. It's a metaphor for the word of God is sharp and powerful, like a two-edged sword. And Jesus, the, the Bible says the word of God is the sword of the spirit. Jesus' words were weapons. No weapon formed against it could prosper. It, it never returned void. Like, his word was a weapon. It was a sword. And so he just said, I am. And when he preached the word, I am, quoting from Exodus, everyone in the Garden of Gethsemane fell down backwards in the story. That's how powerful his preaching was. In fact, one time, some soldiers came to arrest Jesus, and they came back to their CO empty-handed. And their superior said, why couldn't you arrest the fugitive from Nazareth, Jesus? And they replied, and I quote, no man spake like this man. So they said, we couldn't arrest him because nobody speaks like him. He has a golden throat and silver tongue. Like, could you imagine being a cop and your duty is to go arrest a fugitive and then you come back to your boss empty-handed and they say, why couldn't you arrest the fugitive? And you're like, he was such a sweet talker. <laughs> that would not go over well with your boss. It's like, what, did he have an AK-47? No, he had a John 316. <laughs> Just game over, not even playing. So Jesus was so powerful that his word could knock people over. It could keep soldiers from arresting him. But not only could he have wiped out his enemies through his prayer, number two, he, or through his preaching, number two, he could have wiped them out through his politics. 
One of Jesus' followers was named, uh, Greg, help me out here. Was it Simon the Zealot or Judas the Zealot? I can't remember. It was Simon the Zealot, right? Yeah, so one of his followers was Simon the Zealot. Who were zealots? Well, zealots were political insurgents and upstarts and revolutionaries who were trying to overthrow the boot of the Romans on the neck of the Jews. So they were revolutionaries who tried to defeat the Romans. And they would team up with a group of people called the Sicarii Dagger Bears. Now, Greg, you've been to Israel many times, and I just got back from teaching there as well. And it's crazy. When you go to Israel, there's a bunch of caves in the hills. And in these caves, these Sicarii Dagger Bears, these political upstarts, they would hide in the caves, and they would come down from the caves, and they would take cloaks, they would take their dagger out of their cloak, and they would stab Roman citizens and Roman sympathizers, then they'd put their cloak in their dagger and disappear in the crowd. Ever heard the phrase cloak and dagger? That's what they would literally do, and they teamed up with the zealots. That's why Jesus' disciples fought a lot. Because like on one hand, you have a zealot who was trying to kill Romans. And then on the other hand, you have Matthew, who was a Roman tax collector. He worked for the Roman government. So do you see why they fought and didn't get along? Be that as it may, Jesus could have used his political prowess. He could have thrown his weight around and used the Sicarii Dagobers, the zealots, the people who said Hosanna, which was a political term, which meant save now. They were expecting him as he rode into Jerusalem to save them from the Romans. In fact, the very phrase son of God, Divi Filius, was put on first century coins in uh, the Roman Empire with the image of Caesar Augustus. And it said son of God, speaking of Caesar Augustus, the king. So when they called Jesus the son of God, they were saying he is the king instead of Caesar. And when Jesus was crucified, what did the Romans put on his sign? King of the Jews to mock him. But they did it in three languages. King of the Jews in Hebrew, which was the language of the Old Testament religion. Latin, which is the language of Roman politics. And also in Greek, which was the language of philosophy. So they were accidentally saying, Jesus is not just the king of the Jews. He's the, kings of, he's the king of religion. He's the king of politics. And he's the king of philosophy. Hashtag no big deal, low-key world domination. So he could have used his politics. He could have summoned the Sicarii dagger bears, all the people in Jerusalem, the Jews who were ready to overthrow the Romans, the zealots, to wipe out his enemies, but he didn't. And thirdly, Jesus could have used his prayer. He could have used one prayer to wipe out all the Jews in the lynch mob who came to arrest him there in the garden. Uh, it's crazy. Remember when Peter took out his sword and he chopped off Malchus's ear? And Jesus said, put away your sword. Do you not know that I could call forth, summon forth, 12 legions of angels? Now, how many is that? Well, in the first century, a legion consisted of 6,000 troops. So what is 6,000 times 12? What is 6,000 times 12? 72,000. That's a lot of angels. Now, when you think of angels, don't think of little cupids shooting heart arrows at people, you know, sitting on fluffy cloud, the cloud nine of the seventh heaven. Like angels, there was one angel in Isaiah that killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. So don't picture little chubby cupids, picture Chuck Norris with wings. Like they did not mess around. 185,000 Assyrians, one angel killed in a single night. So if you do the math and crunch the numbers, if you multiply 185,000, that's how much one angel could kill. That's lowballing it. You multiply 185,000 times 6,000. That's a legion times 12. Jesus said he could call down 12 legions of angels. And if you take a census in the first century of the year 1 AD of how many people were on earth, 
there were only 300 million people on earth in the year 1 AD. So when Jesus was saying, I could call down 12 legions of angels, you multiply 6,000 by 12 by, watch this, 185,000, then the math is this. Jesus was saying he could wipe out mathematically the entire earth's population by 44.4 times over with a single prayer. Peter, put away your sword. I got this. He's powerful with his prayer, with his politics, with his preaching. And yet, even though he had all this power, it's been said, power corrupts absolutely. George Bernard Shaw said, power doesn't corrupt. Fools, when they get into power, corrupt power. But ultimately, people get corrupted when they come into positions of power. And yet, Jesus had the ultimate power. And he laid it down. Look at what he did with his power. Could you imagine a politician using their power to die on a cross? In the save or kill decision, kill me, save them. I give my life as a ransom for many. And because he did not spare his only son, he will also with him freely give us all things. Which is why, my friends, we have hope. Let's look at Romans 15 verse 13. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love hopes all things. And knowing that our Lord is the God of hope and that love hopes all things and that he shows his love to us. I love what Jesus said. Greater love has no man than this than that he lays down his life for his friends. And yet Jesus, when he died on the cross, he didn't just die for his friends. Romans 5 says that Jesus died for his enemies. But if the definition of the greatest love is to die for your friends. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, than he lays down his life for his friends. And yet Romans 5 says he died for his enemies. That's saying Jesus surpassed his own definition of the greatest love. He's like, you can't show greater love than this, than when you lay down your life for your friend. And yet Romans 5 says Jesus died for his enemies, which means Jesus surpassed his own definition of the greatest love, which is why Paul told the Ephesians, my prayer for you is that you would know the height, width, breadth, length, and depth of the love of God, which passes knowledge. His love passes knowledge. He beats his own definition of the greatest love. And love hopes all things. It's because God loves us that we have hope. Do you know what you have to do to receive God's love? You don't have to behave to get saved. You just believe and receive. You can't do enough good things to get God. You can't do enough bad things to lose God because on your worst day with God, you're better off than on your best day without God. And when you're going through your worst, God is planning his best. So everything's going to be okay in the end. So if it's not okay, it's not the end. And it's okay if you're not okay. It's just not okay if you stay that way because God promises a happily ever after because love hopes all things because he loves us to death. And the psalmist said, his loving kindness is better than life. We always have hope. Can I get an amen? This is big. How are you guys doing so far? Are you guys doing good? Okay, good. I still have, I'm still on time. Romans 15, 13, look at this. Now, may the God of hope, everyone say God of hope. Fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope. Everyone say abound in hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit. So we see this word hope used two times in this verse alone. Uh, look up at verse 4 while we're at it. Look up at verse 4. It says, now these things that were written aforetime were written for our learning that through the patience and comfort of the scriptures we might have hope. Now, the word hope is mentioned 129 times in 121 verses in the Bible. So, hope is a thesis thread that runs through the treatise of truth. It's not a message you move on from. It's a message you move deeper into. Because fun is fundamental and Jesus puts the fun back in funeral. 
He causes the dead to raise, the lame to leap, the blind to see, the mute to speak, the deaf to hear, the lost to get found. So hope, when you fly 30,000 feet up, is really uh, sort of the narrative arc of of the story of the scriptures. Um, So hope is so important because we we need hope. We need hope. People commit suicide once every 40 seconds right now. In, in our generation. Once every 40 seconds, people commit suicide. We're, at an, we're breaking records. The suicide rate has increased by 25% nationally. USA Today reported this as a national crisis, an epidemic. It warrants and constitutes as a true, like, you know, DEFCON 1, this is a problem. We consume more pills due to anxiety and depression than the rest of the earth combined by three times over, as Americans. Like antidepressants, I read one study that said they're the number one best-selling prescribed medication, and then another study said they're the number two best-selling prescribed medication. But for a nation that's built on the foundation of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we're awfully stressed, depressed, distressed, and in deep debt, a trillion dollars to China. Like, we're living in a generation where hope is very hard to come by. And I know because I struggled with chronic depression for 10 years, and God delivered me from that. He rescued me from that. He healed me, and I was suicidal. And so, if you feel like you found the cure to cancer, as medical scientists are trying, or if you found like you've found the cure to AIDS, just as social activists are attempting, wouldn't you shout that thing from the rooftops? The reason I like do this every day and travel around speaking the message of hope is because I really believe the God of hope is the secret, the panacea, the nepenthe, the cure-all, the reason why we can get healed, Jehovah Rapha applying the healing balm of Gilead to our wounds. I believe the God of hope can heal us from depression. I believe the God of hope promises us that the universe is unfolding as it should. And yes, hashtag the struggle is real, but so is God. Life is tough, but God is tougher. Life is a battle, but the battle is the Lord's. And no one ever injured their eyesight by looking on the bright side. So we're not going to complain because rose bushes have thorns. We're going to rejoice because thorn bushes have roses. Our past supply is not our last supply. The more desperate the case, the more space for God's grace. God's love is the coal that makes the train roll. So we're going to be strong when everything's going wrong. We're going to hope and cope because our hope is not dictated by our circumstances. Rather, our circumstances will always be dictated by our hope. So we're going to relax and sit back because every setback is a setup for a comeback. If we're on this planet... If we're on this mode of dust in a sunbeam hurtling through space at 67,000 miles per hour, we might as well change the world while we're here. If William Pitt the Younger could become British Prime Minister at the age of 24, then why can't we do anything? We're too young to realize that certain things are impossible, so we'll do them anyway. And even if you're older in age, you can be younger in stage of life. For Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom, you must become as a child. We were meant to, with childlike wonder, wander among the wonders, enter into the joy of the Lord, spread hope around. Let's change the world. Why not? Who says we can't? And if people tell me it's impossible, I see impossible as a dare rather than a declaration. And here's the reality. We are dropping veritable bars. Can I please get an amen? This is the thing. When we're talking about hope, we should have so much fun, so much joy, so much hope. When we're talking about hope, this is not just let me serve you up Pegasus steak for dinner and rainbow sandwiches for lunch as unicorns are shooting rainbows out of their eyes and it's raining jelly beans and Skittles. The thing I'm talking about tonight, the hope in the Bible, this is next level stuff. This is deep. This isn't just all trouble, no base. We're not just skimming off the top. We're plumbing the deeps. The hope in the Bible in Hebrew, like when, when the biblical authors use the word hope, like in thy word do I hope, the psalmist said. The word hope in Hebrew refers to being knitted. Everyone say knitted. 
Which means when your life unravels, your hope never does. Hope isn't loosey-goosey, it's knitted. It's firm, firmly knitted to ultimate reality, the source, the prime mover, the mystery. Again, we see uh, in the New Testament, this word he uses for hope, when he says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believe that you may abound in hope. Like Paul talked to Titus, for example, about the hope to eternal life. The word hope here is the word el peace in Greek. Would everyone please say el peace? The word el peace means joyful. Everyone say joyful. joyful. Confident. Confident. Welcome. Welcome. So in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for hope referred to being? Do you want me to go over this whole sermon again? In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for hope refers to being knitted. And in the New Testament, the word el peace means joyful, confident, welcome. Right? Let's go over those for just a minute. Joyful, confident, welcome. We need more joy. <laughs> I love Greg so much in the Dedham family because when I'm with them, it's just joy. I never go around them and I'm like, I hope they're not in a bad mood today. I hope they're not going to be discouraging today. You know when you get around them, they're just a veritable lump of sunshine. In the same way, like hope is, we need more joy. I have never met someone and I'm like, gosh, they're just too joyful. And listen, I'm preaching to myself today because I, I was pretty grumpy today, to be honest. I was in the iPhone store for like two hours, and I don't like doing that kind of stuff. So um, I promised I wouldn't preach about my cell phone, but I dropped my cell phone in a hot tub so, uh, today. So I was like, the struggle's real, being an American, first world problems. But like, I need to, even this for myself. Uh, the truth is, oh, hope is joyful. We should be the most joyful people ever. Do you know how I got healed from depression? One of, the, one of the ways, and I talk about it in the book, but one of the ways is uh, it wasn't people who had deep conversations with me over coffee. It was crazy friends who just skated with me and didn't say anything about my suffering. <laughs> Sometimes, like my dad talks about that when his first wife died, there were so many people offering condolences, but what really helped him was when a guy didn't say anything about what he went through and he just said, let's go play basketball. Because there's this story, it's pretty crazy of... Uh, President Garfield, he became the president in 1881. Six months later, he was shot in the back by an assassin, and he survived. But back then, they thought you had to take a bullet out of the, the, the skin in order to save a person. They didn't know that you can actually live with a bullet in your body. So they were trying to find where the bullet was, but they couldn't, they couldn't find it in his body. So Alexander Graham Bell invented an electrical device to try to find this bullet, and they were like probing Garfield's body, trying to get the bullet out, and he died. He died. Not, watch this, not from the bullet. He died because they kept on probing his wounds. And sometimes it's not the trial, the shots fired that hurt us or kill us. What kills us in the end is all the endless probing into our wounds. And sometimes the Lord says, let me turn your scars into stars. By my wounds, you are healed. Touch my wounds, not just hear my words. Be healed. Do you want to be made well? And honestly, it's so easy to play. I got to see what the time is. It's so easy to play the victim mentality and to say, well, I've gone through a lot of stuff. And we do go through stuff. But anybody can get jaded. Anybody can get cynical. Anybody can walk around with lines etched in their face, bent over double, like Gandalf the Grey. Anybody can do that. That doesn't take wisdom to get old. You know what takes wisdom is becoming like a child and do you know what a child does? Jesus said, if you want to enter into the kingdom, which he defined as the, 
entering into the joy of the Lord. Paul called it joy in the Holy Ghost. That's how you define the kingdom, amongst other things. If you want to enter the kingdom, you must become as a child. Did you know the average child laughs 200 to 400 times every day, whereas the average adult laughs only 13 to 17 times a day? Now, I'm not a rocket scientist. I got a 2.0 grade point average because my teachers didn't know how to teach a creative genius. <laughs> Joking. But I did get a 2.0. I have as many IQ points as the Cleveland Browns put on the scoreboard. I don't have an alphabet after my name or as many degrees as a thermometer, but it does not take a genius to realize that if kids are laughing 200 to 400 times a day and adults are laughing 13 to 17 times a day, then we're getting less joy the older we get. Maybe Jesus was onto something when he said, become as a child, for Jesus himself was anointed with the oil of gladness above all his fellows. And even in Isaiah 53, when he was the man of sorrows looking to the cross, Hebrews 12 says there was joy set before him even then. So even when we go through sorrow, we should have joy. Why? Well, let me put it to you this way. A year and a half ago, we were filming for our TV show in France, and my friend Sean was doing these like backflips off this dilapidated building into the Mediterranean Sea, and I was doing these front flips off the building. And after a little bit of time, I came out from the water and uh, was laying under an umbrella in the sand. And Sean, my friend, he comes out of the water just like limping and laughing. And I'm like, why are you limping, Sean, and why are you laughing? And he was cracking up like uncontrollably. I said, Sean, what's so funny? He said, I just got stung by a jellyfish. <laughs> Couldn't stop laughing. I'm like, Sean, that's not funny. Jellyfish stings can be lethal, fatal. It's a crucible of excruciating pain. I said, Sean, if you could die in an hour, why are you laughing? And Sean said, because if I only have an hour left to live, I might as well enjoy the rest of my life. I will enjoy where I'm at on the way to where I'm going. Guess what? An hour later, he was totally okay. The book of Proverbs says, a merry heart does good like medicine. That's what the Bible says. Joy works like medicine. This was thousands of years ago that this was written. And guess what medical science is now telling us? That depressed people get colds more frequently than non-depressed people. That people who laugh more live longer. That laughing 100 times per day has the same effect on your body as being on a rowing machine for 10 minutes or a stationary bike for 15 minutes. So if you want better abs, laugh at my jokes. <laughs> You're getting your ab workout today. Proverbs 31. I, I just love taking this verse out of context because it's talking about the virtuous woman, but it says the virtuous woman laughs without fear of the future. Like I want that to define me, not the woman part, but the laughing part. Like the virtuous woman laughs without fear of the future. I just uh, read this recently. Let me, let me share this with you. Uh, Dr. Carl Pilmer is a professor of human development at Cornell University. He met with uh, 1,200 senior citizens to discuss the meaning of life. He was shocked to learn that most people near the end of their lives had the same regret, and this was their regret. I wish I hadn't spent so much of my lifetime worrying. When you die, when you're on your deathbed, you're not going to say, gosh, I wish I worried more. <laughs> Nobody's going to say that. Out of the 1,200 people, the thing they said the most is, I wish I hadn't spent so much of my lifetime worrying. And I tend to be a worry wart by nature. I have OCD. Actually, I have CDO. It's like OCD, but the letters are in alphabetical order like they're supposed to be. But instead, like Psalm 126 verse 3 says, then was our mouth filled with laughter 
For they said among the nations, the Lord hath done great things. It's like the psalmist is saying, don't be sad. Because sad spelled backwards is das. And das not good. <laughs> so this is what the author's saying. Like, hope in the Bible, the word el peace, it means joyful. Would everyone please say joyful? joyful. It's the fruit of the spirit, man. I want to deconstruct the word hope because a lot of people, and then put it back together, because people think hope is motivational speak and it's just airy-fairy, happy-clappy, wishy-washy, hunky-dory, pie in the sky, sunny with the high 75. And people just think, oh, it's just like motivational speak. No, no, hope is the deeps. Hope is wisdom. Romans 15.4 says the Bible was written to give you hope. Look, look again at verse 4. Paul tells you there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible, 66 books written by 40 different authors. What does he say in verse 4? We wrote the Bible to give you hope. I can speculate as to why the Bible was written. Commentators can tell us why they think the scriptures were penned, but I'd rather have Paul tell me autobiographically, since he wrote 14 books of the New Testament, why they wrote the Bible. And he said, actually, we wrote the Bible to give you hope. Meaning, if I walk away from a Bible study with less hope rather than more hope, it is a giant exercise in missing the point. We are not delivering the blues, we're delivering good news. Joyful joyful. I'm glad Greg is happy about this. Is anyone happy about this? That that's our message? A message of hope. Number two. So it's joyful. What was the second one? Confident. Um, confident. <laughs> Kanye West. Have you ever read his tweets? <laughs> Do you know Kanye became a worship leader? I just found out it's pretty funny. It's invite only. <laughs> But have you ever read Kanye West's tweets? Unbelievable. Kanye West literally tweeted to the world, you may be talented, but you're not Kanye West. I may not be able to be tall and skinny, but I'll settle for being the greatest artist of all time as a consolation. I wish I had a friend like me, and I believe in surrounding myself with winners, which is my, why my room is full of mirrors. <laughs> no lack of confidence there, but... Do you know who would give Kanye a run for his Yeezys? Was Moses. I love that response, Aaron. <laughs> I literally just want to bring you everywhere, dude. Moses, Numbers 12.3, it says Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Who wrote that verse? Moses. <laughs> it gets me every time. Like the book is attributed to Moses. And he, and he says it in third person, autobiographically, like athletes and rappers do. Most, not I'm the most humble guy ever. He says Moses is the most humble man on the face of the earth. <laughs> writes Moses. Which makes me rethink what humility is. Do you know the Bible never calls you a sinner in your present tense? Oh, we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God according to Paul. But Paul never said to the idiots at Thessalonica, to the losers at Corinth, and to the sinners at Philippi. He calls us saints, saints, saints. Now, maybe humility is not walking around saying, no one likes me, everyone hates me, why don't I just go eat worms, hashtag current mood, I'm a piece of garbage. I see that on social media sometimes. People are like, hashtag current mood, and they're like showing themselves weeping on their story to say, this is my real life. I'm like, well, I mean... Here's the thing. Moses felt like a piece of trash. 
10 times at the burning bush, he made excuses for why God couldn't use him. 10 times. You can count them. Read the story of Moses at the burning bush. 10 times. He said, this is why I can't do it. And he kept, it was just repeating in different words why he couldn't speak. Like, I'm not good at speaking, he said. And yet, God said, Moses, you write. If God said, Moses, you write, Moses is the most humble man on the face of the earth, then who is Moses to disagree? And if God told him to write that, the most humble thing Moses could do is to say, I will meekly submit to what you tell me to do, what you speak over my life, regardless of what I feel. I feel like a piece of trash. I'm not eloquent. I can't speak. I make 10 excuses why I can't be used. But here's the thing. You say I'm the most humble man ever. You tell me to write that. So God, I will obediently write what you tell me to speak over myself. The most humble thing you could do friends, is to agree with God, not to elevate your opinion of yourself above what God says about you. Because Antonio Damasio, a neuroscientist, said our feelings decide for us 95% of the time. Even if we know something's going to be destructive, if it feels good in the moment, that's what we do. So we're creatures of habit and we go by our feelings 95% of the time. So the truth is, regardless of what you feel, you don't walk by sight, you walk by faith. It's a sixth sense, not a feeling. That's what faith is. So ultimately, the most humble thing you could do is say, well, if this is what God says about me, then this is what I'll speak over my life. I'm Imago Dei, made in his image, created in his likeness. I'm the head, not the tail. I'm above, not beneath. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. All my days are written in his book. Malachi 3.17, I am his jewel. The gospels, I am his pearl of great price that the master of kingdom would bankrupt the heavens to sell everything he has to buy me his pearl of great price that he found dirty in a field, dug up, washed in the water of the, his word, went to the ends of the earth, even across to prove not that he's mad at me, but he's madly in love with me. Psalm 8, I'm crowned with glory and honor. Paul the apostle, all things are yours. The book of Psalms, the earth he has given to the sons of men. Luke 15, all thi- everything that I have belongs to you. Um, we are cr- uh, crowned with glory and honor, made a little lower than the angels, as I mentioned. Again, the Bible says we are his workmanship in Greek, his poema. That means poetry and motion. We're his masterpiece. We are kings. We are priests. We are a royal priesthood. And Revelation 3, we are going to sit with Jesus on his throne as we overcome by faith. That's what I say over my life. And that's the most humble thing I could do. Because hope is confident. Confident. Godfident. Everyone say Godfident. I see you, dude. Godfident. And lastly, okay, perfect. Uh, it's welcome. This joyful confidence is the um, threshold across which we welcome the miracles of God into our life. This is pretty nuts, but when we're talking about this God of hope, he's the God of joyful, confident, welcome, LPs. Uh, the word hope, we've been discussing this, defines God. It personifies the divine. Um. Do you guys know the name for God? It's not only, we see his title here is that he's the God of hope, according to Romans 15. But do you know what his name is? And I close with this. Do you know what God's name is in the Old Testament? Yahweh. But did you know the name Yahweh? You weren't even supposed to speak it. You were supposed to breathe it. The ancient rabbis tell us it's the ineffable tetragrammaton, which means the unspeakable name. You weren't allowed to speak the name of God so much as to breathe it. That's why if you actually read the word Yahweh in the original language, it's only consonants and no vowels. It's just Y-H-W-H. There's no A-E-I-O-U. Why? Because those are the only consonants that when pronounced correctly, you can't speak them with your tongue nor with your lips closed because it was meant to imitate and replicate breath. So the rabbis tell us the name of God wasn't meant to be spoken, it was meant to be breathed. 
That's why the consonants Y, H, W, H were chosen. So it sounded like Yahweh. Right? Yahweh. So when people say, if he's the God of hope, where is he when my heart is hurting? That's like saying, what shape is yellow? God is as close to you as your very breath. Where can you flee from his presence? He prays through us with groanings that cannot be uttered. You're like, man, Paul tells me to pray without ceasing. I haven't done that in a while. Are you sure? All through the day. You've been praying a lot more than you think you are. The Spirit's praying through you with breaths that cannot be uttered. Do you know the word spirit and breath is the same in every major language? Ruach, pneuma, it means spirit or breath. How did Jesus give his disciples the Holy Spirit in Acts? He breathed on them. It says he breathed the Spirit on them. So all through the day, you're praying without ceasing. He's as near to you as your very breath. I love it when atheists are like, let me prove through a posteriori and a priori didactic reasoning that a belief in God is diametrically opposed to reason. So let me make an apology for why there is no existence of a creator. (sighs) Cognitive dissonance, anyone? The very breath that they're pulling is the name of God that they're trying to debunk in that very sentence. You're like, man, was my first word ball? That's the first word I thought I spoke. No, the first word you speak out of your mother's womb is Yahweh. The last word you speak, Steve Jobs, his last words were, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. The last words you speak are going to be Yahweh. Maybe you don't die when you stop breathing. Maybe you die when you can no longer say the name of God. Why did God change Sarai to Sarah? Abram to Abraham? Because he put breath in their name. The, the, the life animating force of Yahweh, the breath of Yahweh. Because the Bible says those who are in him are new creatures. The word creature in Greek is species. You're a new species. You go from Abram to Abraham. Sarai to Sarah. The divine in your identity. You go from a homo sapien to a hopo sapien. A B-apostle to an A-apostle, an ain't to a saint. I'm preaching better than you're listening. Would somebody say amen? So before I pray, as Greg mentioned, this has been a pretty crazy season for my family, and that's why hope is... This is the thing. Um, the more I go through, the more like insane I become about hope. Like, no holds barred. Vanilla never changed the world. There's no such thing as a moderate revolutionary. Anything worth doing is worth overdoing, the Navy SEALs say. Like, it's not just, oh, I'm going to give you a little bit of hope. Like, we are doing this thing. We are putting wheels on this. You can't have too much hope. There's no glass ceiling there. I've never met someone and said, you know, they have way too much hope. You can't have too much hope. I remember when I was a kid, my... um, my sister, she was uh, joking with my dad because my dad's like, Jessica, you have to uh, marry somebody who's godlier than you. And she's like, well, that's not going to happen. And my dad said, why not? And she said, because I'm the godliest person I know. <laughs> and indeed, she was just joking around, but like super godly girl. The next day when my sister died in a car accident, my brother was the one who came home and delivered the news to our family. And he said, Jessica's found her man. She's found her man. The bride of Christ has found her man. At my sister's memorial service, there was this song that was played 
And every time I hear it, I think of her. It's the song Take My Hand and Walk by The Cry. It's like a really obscure indie Christian song from the 90s, but beautiful. And so a month and a half ago when I was with my brother and he was dying of colon cancer, we didn't know when he would pass away, but we could see he was near the end. And I didn't realize that as me and my dad were sitting with him there on his deathbed, that uh, this song that came on the radio, it was just playing on shuffle. Nobody planned this. It was just playing on shuffle in the background. It's not like it's a popular song. It's an indie 90s song people don't really know about. The song Take My Hand and Walk came on the radio. And my brother was there breathing his last. And my dad looked up at me with tears in his eyes. He said, Ben, do you hear this? I said, I was waiting for you to say something. Because the song that my sister went home to, this is the song that just came on at my brother's deathbed. And then he too went to heaven. And the song is Take My Hand and Walk by the cry. Take my hand and walk. And I just picture with one hand the Lord takes my sister, walks her down the wedding aisle as the bride of Christ. She's found her man. And with the other hand, he takes my brother. Some, somebody Instagrammed me and said, messaged me and said, your brother graduated. When he died, your brother graduated. I picture the Lord with the other hand taking my brother down the aisle and saying, come down the graduation aisle. Well done, good and faithful servant. You graduated with one hand, my brother, with his other hand, my sister. Like you, I've gone through stuff. A couple years ago, I went through a romantic heartbreak that left me absolutely shattered in my heart. I thought I'd never be happy again. Like you go through stuff. The path bifurcates. The choice is here. Either you're going to withdraw into yourself. You're going to retreat into yourself. You're going to become a robot with dead batteries and you're, not, you're going to try not to feel anything. You're going to become numb. Or you're going to get more passionate than ever about hope because this is breath. This is breath. This is as vi- the God of hope is as vital as breath. He's everything. He's everything. He's everything. And you know what? You know why I have hope? Because I didn't say goodbye to my brother and sister. I said, see you later. Death doesn't have the last word. The Lord of lords and king of kings put death to death. So we don't have to be scared to death of death. Because the place of the skull, he crushed the skull of the serpent with the crown of thorns on his skull. So we are going to rejoice. We are going to give ourselves to hope. We are going to be possessed of a sacred optimism. A childlike cheerful stoicism. We're going to go through life with Jesus joy and calm delight. We're going to abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we know that Yahweh is in our very breath. He is the atmosphere in which we live and breathe and have our being. We can't escape him any more than we can escape our own oxygen. He's with us. And when we kneel before him, he'll stand up for us. And when he stands up for us, no one can stand against us. So let's give ourselves over to the God of hope. And let's change this Lord, we, we love you so much. You're so good to us. We're so, so in love with you. You're everything. You're everything to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.